Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our May 2015 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. The DSM-5 introduces changes to the conceptualization and diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. The DSM-5 uses a four-factor model of PTSD symptoms, but the factor structure of PTSD symptoms in DSM-5 has not been evaluated in a population-based sample. In this study, the authors evaluate the prevalence of DSM-5 PTSD and the factor structure of DSM-5 PTSD symptoms in a nationally representative sample of U.S. veterans. Using weighted data from nearly 1,500 U.S. veterans who participated in a web-based survey in 2013, they found that 12% screened positive for lifetime PTSD and 5.2% for past-month PTSD, according to DSM-5 criteria. Using confirmatory factor analyses, the authors found a six-factor model of PTSD symptoms consisting of re-experiencing, avoidance, emotional numbing, externalizing behaviors, anxious arousal, and dysphoric arousal symptoms. This six-factor model provided a better fit to the symptom data than the DSM-5 four-factor model and the five-factor dysphoric arousal model. In the six-factor model, the emotional numbing symptom cluster was more strongly related to depression and worse mental health-related functioning than any other symptom clusters. The externalizing behavior symptom cluster was more strongly related to hostility. These results are the first to evaluate the prevalence and factor structure of DSM-5 PTSD symptoms in a nationally representative sample of U.S. veterans. They may inform continued efforts to treat and contribute to the evolving conceptualizations of PTSD symptoms. Vortioxetine is an antidepressant with a mechanism of action thought to be related to a combination of two pharmacologic actions, direct modulation of several receptors and inhibition of the serotonin transporter. In this month's issue, Dr. Treveni and colleagues present two randomized controlled trials examining the efficacy and safety of vortioxetine in major depressive disorder. Both were eight-week studies using the Montgomery-Asberg Depression Rating Scale as their primary outcome measures. Both were sponsored by Takeda and Lundbeck. In the first study, 462 adults received 10 or 20 milligrams of vortioxetine or placebo. The 20 milligram dose significantly improved depressive symptoms and response rate versus placebo based on the Montgomery-Asberg total score. 
However, improvement seen with the 10 milligram dose did not reach statistical significance. CGI scores and Sheehan Disability Scale scores also improved with the 20 milligram dose, but improvements with the 10 milligram dose were again not statistically significant. In patients with high baseline anxiety levels, both dose groups showed improvement in depression scores. The second study, which had a similar sample size and used 10 and 15 milligram doses of vortioxetine, found no statistical difference from placebo for either dose in Montgomery Asperg total score. In both studies, nausea was the most commonly reported adverse event. The full text of these articles is freely available online. Please also go online to read an insightful commentary by Bodie Dunlop and Mark Rappaport, in which they consider reasons why results may vary among clinical trials for psychiatric medications. Please visit the May Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. The transition from healthy status to illness occurs gradually in most psychiatric syndromes. Bipolar disorder is often not diagnosed and treated in patients until 5 to 15 years after its estimated onset. The authors of this CME offering conducted a review that focused on the characteristics and timing of precursors of bipolar disorder. Their work was supported by the National Institute of Mental Health, the National Institutes of Health, and other private donors. The authors found that the risk of bipolar disorder increased with the number of lifetime depressive episodes and with the number of hypomanic symptoms. Longer episodes of depression, greater loading of depressive symptoms, and higher recurrence rates increased the risk of bipolar disorder. Young age at onset of depression, hypomanic symptoms, cyclothymic temperament, psychotic features, suicidal ideation, and a family history of bipolar disorder were associated with a later change in diagnosis to bipolar disorder. The authors conclude that combining precursors and other risk factors may increase predictive value, support earlier diagnosis, improve treatment, and limit disability in bipolar disorder. In real-world settings, the effective management of schizophrenia is complicated by many factors, including contact with the criminal justice system, multiple hospitalizations, comorbid substance abuse, treatment adherence challenges, unemployment, and unstable living conditions. However, clinical trials with restricted inclusion criteria usually exclude many persons with these factors. Consequently, results of these trials may not reflect in a general sense many patients commonly encountered in clinical practice. The authors of this article describe results from the paliperidone palmitate research in demonstrating effectiveness study. This study compared treatment with paliperidone palmitate, the once-monthly injectable antipsychotic therapy, and daily oral antipsychotic treatment in patients with schizophrenia and a history of incarceration. With funding support from Janssen, 
researchers conducted a 15-month multi-center study that was randomized and open-label with a blinded event monitoring board. The study was expressly designed to include elements that reflect real-world practice. There were few exclusionary criteria. Treatments were flexibly administered, and clinically important outcome measures were chosen as endpoints. The authors found that paliperidone palmitate significantly delayed median time to treatment failure by 190 days compared to oral antipsychotics. Arrests, incarcerations, and psychiatric hospitalizations accounted for over 70% of the primary endpoints. Overall, no unexpected adverse events were noted. Paliperidone palmitate was associated with numerically greater prolactin elevations, sexual side effects, and weight gain. The authors conclude that the use of a more real-world study design helps provide confidence that the superior efficacy for paliperidone palmitate over daily oral antipsychotic therapy might better generalize to patients commonly encountered in clinical practice. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the May Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Second-generation antipsychotics and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, are widely prescribed to patients, including children and adolescents, and provide proven benefits across a number of psychiatric conditions. Increasingly, however, the long-term metabolic and hormonal effects of these drug classes are being recognized. In this study, the authors prospectively examined the longitudinal skeletal effects of risperidone and SSRIs in a group of 94 boys. These participants were first assessed at a mean age of 11.8 years and then assessed at follow-up one and a half years later. The majority had an externalizing disorder. At study entry, they had been taking risperidone and SSRIs for an average of two and a half years. Anthropometric, laboratory, and bone mass measurements were obtained. Bone mass was assessed at the lumbar spine using dual-energy X-ray absorptiometry. It was also assessed at the distal forearm using peripheral quantitative computed tomography in order to isolate trabecular bone at the radius with minimal exposure to radiation. Trabecular bone is more sensitive to hormonal, metabolic, toxic, and pharmacologic factors. By follow-up visit, 26% of study participants had discontinued risperidone. Compared to discontinuation, Continuing the agent was associated with a decline in bone mass for age, sex, and height at the lumbar spine and with failure to increase trabecular bone mass in the forearm. In addition, receiving an SSRI was associated with reduced lumbar spine and radius bone mass at both study entry and follow-up, but without further decline observed between the two visits. The authors summarized that chronic SSRI treatment in children and adolescents is associated with reduced, albeit stable, bone mass, while chronic risperidone treatment is associated with failure to accrue bone mass over time. 
This study was funded by grants from the U.S. National Institutes of Health and two Young Investigator Awards. Phototherapy, or bright light therapy, is an effective and safe treatment for major depressive disorder. It exerts rapid mood-elevating activity similar to that provided by antidepressant medication. In this study, the authors assessed the efficiency of bright light therapy as an adjuvant treatment to antidepressant pharmacotherapy. Fifty inpatients with severe major depression received treatment with venlafaxine. Of these, half were randomly assigned to receive morning bright light therapy for the first week of treatment. Mood states were assessed by the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale, the HDRS, the primary outcome measure, profile of mood states, the POMS, and Beck Depression Inventory, the BDI, before treatment and at weeks 1, 2, 4, and 8. Both strategies significantly improved depression and negative mood by treatment week 1. Therapeutic effects were more remarkable by week 2, with beneficial effects improving until trial conclusion. Those patients treated with venlafaxine plus bright light therapy had significantly lower HDRS depression scores, as well as POMS and BDI negative mood state scores. This more favorable effect of the combination of venlafaxine and bright light therapy generally became more remarkable at week two and was sustained. At week four, 76% of patients treated with venlafaxine plus bright light therapy versus just 44% of venlafaxine-only patients attained the target goal of treatment an HDRS score of 13 or less, which indicates mild depression. At week 8, 76% of patients treated with venlafaxine plus bright light therapy versus just 64% of the venlafaxine-only patients experienced complete remission of their depression per an HDRS score of 7 or less. Both venlafaxine and the combination of venlafaxine plus bright light therapy significantly reversed the depressive mood of patients with severe major depressive disorder. However, the combination treatment induced significantly stronger beneficial effects and did so more rapidly. Future long-term studies with large sample sizes nonetheless are required to confirm and generalize these results to patients of diverse ethnicities and cultures with both severe and mild major depression. Little is known about treatment response and outcome for inpatients with serious mental illness, particularly those with a high number of co-occurring disorders and multiple treatment trials. It is broadly assumed that these individuals have a poor prognosis and limited improvement in mental and physical functioning, as most would be characterized as suffering from one or more treatment refractory conditions. Research evidence is limited in part because psychiatric hospital systems rarely report psychiatric outcomes other than patient satisfaction. 
A recent study by Fowler and colleagues examined changes in health-related quality of life in adult inpatients engaged in a six- to eight-week broad-based intensive treatment program that integrated patients' psychological, physical, and social needs. Large effect sizes were found for improvements in mental health functioning, with 38% of patients returning to healthy functioning. However, the durability of these gains is unknown, and the authors are currently collecting data for a one-year follow-up study. This study received funding support in part from the Menninger Foundation. Sleep problems are common in PTSD and may be a core feature of the disorder. In 2010, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Defense released their clinical practice guidelines in which they recommended that clinicians provide prasicin for PTSD-related nightmares. However, research suggests that prasicin has been underutilized in the VA. In this article, a group of researchers from the VA examined a cohort of veterans with PTSD who were beginning treatment with prasicin. The author's aim was to characterize the subject's dosing patterns and duration of use. This research was funded by the Department of Veterans Affairs. The authors found that in over 12,000 veterans, prasicin doses generally increased during treatment, reaching an average maximum dose of 3.6 milligrams per day across all patients. Only 14% of veterans reached the minimum guideline recommended dose of 6 milligrams per day. Regarding duration of use, 20% of the patients never refilled their initial prasicin prescription and 18% discontinued within six months. The remaining 61% continued taking prasicin for more than six months and 38% persisted for at least one year. The authors conclude that further investigation to identify clinical factors underlying these prescribing patterns is justified. Their findings demonstrate a vital opportunity for more optimal use of this low-cost available treatment. African-American adults may not recognize symptoms of ADHD due to lack of knowledge about the disorder or because they have developed coping strategies for their symptoms. However, ADHD symptoms, if left untreated, can cause problems at work, school, or home. Clinicians should use a multifaceted diagnostic approach to assessing ADHD, including DSM criteria, a clinical interview, rating scales, and informant reports. In this commentary, funded by an educational grant from Shire, learn ways to individualize and explain treatment options to patients and their families in ways that are culturally appropriate. Intranasal drug delivery systems have a number of advantages, including rapid onset of action, increased bioavailability, and avoidance of the inconvenience and discomfort associated with other modes of delivery. 
In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade discusses the use of intranasal delivery systems in neuropsychiatry, particularly for administration of ketamine and oxytocin. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read this column free of charge and participate in the discussion. In this issue, we highlight two educational activities. One explores sleep problems, which are commonly overlooked, but are associated with concentration difficulties, mood disorders, and driving accidents. In this CME activity, funded by an educational grant from Merck, you will learn how the sleep cycle should function, what processes can be affected by sleep problems, and what systems are involved in enhancing sleep or blocking wakefulness. The other activity reviews the unique characteristics and needs of Hispanic individuals with ADHD. In this CME offering, funded by an educational grant from Shire, you will find out how to use this knowledge to provide culturally competent diagnosis and treatment to this diverse minority group, which often goes underserved by the mental health community. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the May issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.